Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And that silence is because Tracy uh, is out at the moment. So uh, I had a special guest on for this show. I was so incredibly delighted that Sarah Roberts from the Atlanta History Center was able to join me here in the studio for a little chat. And the plant lovers in the crowd are in for a big treat because Sarah is the vice president of Goizeta Gardens and Living Collections at the History Center. And she knows so much about historical horticulture, but also so much about running a community garden, essentially, and a a living history center. But I actually wanted to have her on for a very specific reason, aside from hearing all that she has to share about both the history center and horticulture. And it's because we often hear from listeners about how much they love history and they would like to perhaps do something in the history space as a career, but maybe they feel like academia isn't the career path for them. They don't necessarily want to teach, but they're wondering if there are other things and there aren't always a lot of people encouraging them (laughs) to find other paths or avenues that they can uh, engage with history as their jobs that do not involve standing behind a podium or a lectern. And so I thought Sarah was a perfect example of that. So uh, we are going to jump right into her interview. So first of all, for anyone listening who doesn't know, I think most Atlanta natives know, uh, but outside of that, they may not, and even some Atlanta natives don't. Tell us about the Atlanta History Center and what it offers. Oh, goodness. The Atlanta History Center has so much to offer. It has Atlanta's largest local history museum with multiple permanent exhibits and temporary exhibits, traveling exhibits. We have the 33-acre Goizueta Gardens, which is surrounding the entire museum complex, all the way from the very entrance where you first pull in to the back corners of the property. There is the Keenan Research Center, which also has the Cherokee Garden Library within it, and all of Atlanta's archives uh, are housed there. Uh, Yeah, I think people don't always realize how much is going on there and how large and expansive it is. I didn't even until, until I started kind of working in the history space. I did not have a sense of just how expansive it is. Um, And then will you talk a little bit about your role there and specifically how you ended up in this job? Because it's it's a uniquely history-oriented job, but that was not your career path. That's so true. How did that happen? How did I end up in history? Um, The Goizueta Gardens was something that developed first with Louise Allen, the wife of Mayor Ivan Allen Jr., and she recognized the cultural landscape of the Swan House and its iconic gardens. So she pushed, as a trustee at the time, that we needed to move the Atlanta Historical Society to this property. And that's the origin of the Atlanta History Center's more than 50 years in historic gardens preservation. And she pushed for all of the community garden clubs and local people that were interested in gardens to come out and participate and have a role in preserving those gardens and maintaining them. So it really had a grassroots origin story, which I love. It's very unusual for a public garden to have that community drive to get it started. Lots of gardens start with a big master plan from a landscape architect, and then they slowly over time build that out. Whereas the History Center's garden started with the community saying, this is something that we want to do. We want to preserve this iconic landscape, and then we want to develop it and add to it. 
And then will you talk a little bit about your education and how you landed there? Yes. So I have a bachelor's degree in ornamental horticulture from Barry College. And while I was there, it was important to me to do some internships and to travel. So one of those internships was at the Arnold Arboretum up at Harvard University. And that was my first taste of public gardens. So public gardens is something that people um, may not understand exactly what that means. It's a garden that's open to the public, yes, but it's also an institution that preserves and collects plants and labels them. So it's for the betterment of your community, it's for educational purposes, and it could be for research, all of those things. And when I was at the Arnold, I did my internship in curation, which is also something I think that just blows right by people. They don't think of gardens as being curated but they are. So just like you might think of an art museum or a history museum, all of those outdoor spaces can be considered exhibits. So the gardens that we have are also like an open-air museum or an accompaniment to the museum where you can look at something inside, learn all about the Civil War, and then step outside to our Smith Farm and immerse yourself in this environment that is authentic and real and start to really imagine what was this life like. But that requires a really researched and thought out landscape to set that tone and also have the house and the plant collections and everything around it be accurate. And you also studied abroad as well. Did I that did. contribute to your your knowledge and appreciation of history and how it relates to horticulture? Absolutely. So um like I was saying my internship at the Arnold was that first eye-opening appreciation for plants being something beyond decorative. I had started in ornamental horticulture, and then when I started there in curation, I got to get into plant records and understanding that this plant that's beautiful, like a paper bark maple, why was the one there so old, and how long had it been there? Well, it was the very first one brought there by this plant explorer from the far-flung corners of Asia that had brought this back. And it was the very first one in this country. And I thought, well, hold on, that has a whole interesting story. I want to know more about that. So I started looking at plant exploration and thinking that, boy, I want to do that. That looks amazing. And explore places and bring plants back and trial them. Can they work here? But also looking through their records, you find these photographs. And they're photographs of people and in those landscapes of how they use those plants and how they were significant. And those landscapes may no longer exist anymore, and those records were so critical. So I got on this path where I wanted to study plant exploration, and I wanted to study the deeper, more nuanced and complex reasons between why we have plants in certain places in this country. So I ended up studying abroad at the University of Reading over in England, and working on soil science and garden history and phylogenetics and just every different aspect of the field that I could study to really broaden my own understanding of how all these different things are connected. And while I was there, I met my future husband. Uh, but I came back to America, and I got a job at the New York Botanical Garden, and I worked there for five years as their curator of herbaceous plants and outdoor gardens. That was a tremendous learning curve and experience of managing plant collections. Uh, and also, I got an opportunity to go on a plant exploration trip. So I got to go to the Republic of Georgia. I got to go on a seed collecting expedition. I got to learn about creating herbarium specimens called vouchers, how you dry them in the field and you're carrying them around and you're meeting the local people and they're offering you the food they grow. And you're, you're starting to appreciate 
how interconnected all of this is, people and culture and plants and environment and landscape and how all that works together. So actually, it ended up being tremendous training for this job that I have now, (laughs) where (laughs) our mission and vision is connecting people and culture and history. So um, that's part of our story. And then I, I ended up moving back to England for three years and working back in garden design again before moving back to Atlanta and um, back to my roots here. Nice. Uh, And we all get to reap the benefits of that. Um, When you're setting up a historic garden, you have a space and they want you to recreate something similar to what it would have looked like during a specific time period. How do you even start that? (sighs) It's so interesting. The development of a new garden has so many facets you have to work through. So first, we live in the city of Atlanta. We're gardening there, and there's a lot of rules. So there's rules about what can you build and what happens if there's a tree right there. So we work with them. We we are about preserving collections and trees. So we are always trying to save them. So any project, we go in with preventative measures. How can we save our trees? Then we're looking at drainage and irrigation and other functional and engineering components of whatever we're trying to do with this landscape. Um, then we're looking at what our, well, I guess we would really begin with, what is our whole scope and vision? What are we trying to achieve here? So with a new garden, it might be that, um, for example, our new entrance gardens that we're working on right now, what I want to do is set the stage for when people first drive in to the front door at the History Center, they see that we are a public garden. It is not solely a museum which is, I think, what most people's understanding is of the History Center. So when you first drive in, you'll arrive and be surrounded by a cultivated, curated landscape that draws you in. And so I have to think through, how do I draw people in? For most people, that's with flowers. They want to see something beautiful. Okay, so we're going to have some flowers and draw people in that way. But how do I make it go beyond the decorative and the ornamental? So I want them to park and then come up. Maybe they'll go to Super Jenny or they'll go to Brass, which are right in our, our front entrance, and then head out into the gardens in the front and this new landscape we're working on and sit down at one of our tables or walk through the landscape and really be immersed in it. Because what I want to do there is echo the modern and progressive um, take that the History Center has with our new architecture as well and the Cyclorama building and everything looks beautiful and modern. I want the landscape to look beautiful and modern too. So one of the things that we're going to do is utilize that acreage to reflect the style called the New Perennial Movement or the Dutch Wave. It goes by a lot of different names. And this is a forward-thinking, more sustainable way of creating a new garden. So what we're going to do is put in plants that are suited to that site, not try to force a plant that needs a lot of water in a space that doesn't have much, for example, but also create an environment where people want to ask some questions. Why did they plant this like this? Why are there so many grasses up here? Uh, Why don't they mow this down? This is wild looking. Um, Because people's idea, especially in our neighborhood, is very cultivated and clipped, and there's boxwoods, and there's 
pansies and tulips, and that's what a garden is. And I want to push that envelope. I want people to come out here and say, what is going on at the History Center? What are they doing up here? And then walk in there and learn how to appreciate plants for different reasons, like creating a relaxing and beautiful and soothing atmosphere that you can walk through. And then when you slow down to look at it, you'll see it buzzing with pollinators. And you'll see every time that you come past that garden, instead of being a static landscape, it'll be changing throughout the seasons. And part of this is teaching people to appreciate the seasonality of plants. The early spring to late spring to summer, the blooms are going to cycle in and out. Plants are going to get bigger in the summertime, and then they're going to fade into fall color. And then we're going to leave those seed heads on so that birds will come out. We'll have goldfinches on our coneflowers, all that sort of thing. Um, you'll see the chrysalis you'll have from the butterflies that I've visited. You'll see and appreciate all these smaller things when you walk through an environment and you're immersed in that landscape of a more ecological planting, a more sustainable planting, and hopefully teach people that it's okay to have grasses that turn beige in the fall. You don't have to cut them to the ground. Leave them up because that also holds that soil in place, and that keeps that soil from eroding away. So there's there's all these reasons that we build landscapes the way they do, how they look, how they make people feel when they're in that environment, to protect the soil health, which is how any garden survives and thrives is with its healthy soil, and then how that plant or that garden senesces into fall and winter. And that kind of landscape is also beautiful. And to teach people that it doesn't have to be clipped and green and in flower, it can also have a natural beauty to it and to learn to appreciate that. I I like that because you're kind of teaching people like natural history along the way. And it's not all about the manicuring that we do, right. but letting plants be the same thing they have always been and appreciating them for that. I right. love that. Um, so in an instance where maybe instead of having to create something that is um, a little more modern, when you're tasked with creating or recreating a historical garden, um, how do you figure out what plants are going to be appropriate for that space? Because often they have been decimated and are no longer part of the area. How, how does that even begin? We have to go back to our records. The wonderful thing about working at a history center is I don't have to go very far. I have to walk <laughs> 100 yards to get to the Keenan Research Center or to get to the Cherokee Garden Library and look up everything I can find about what would life have been like in this particular era. So let's use the Smith Farm, for example. We want it to be accurate to the 1860s. Well, how do I find out what farmers were doing in the 1860s? I need to read what they were reading. So I can go there to the library and work with Stacy Catron, the director there, and not only pick her enormous brain for ideas and resources, but she will pull out all the literature that they would have read. We have those original source documents, and it's one of them was The Southern Cultivator, and I could read through those and read the same thing that Robert Hiram Smith would have read and decide, all right, well, this is how they were growing this plant, not only which plants, but how they grew it. So it's not just okay, they grew tomatoes, let's throw some tomatoes in the ground and grow them the way that we grow them today. We have to think, well, how did they grow tomatoes? And in fact, they had only one or two tomato varieties that they would have grown. Look at what we have today. So first it was looking at the plants and trying to decide, all right, well, if this is what they're listing 
They go by this name in this catalog, but what are they called today? They might have a different name today. Uh, so we look up those. We look up uh, seed catalogs. We look up um, resources from newspapers. Like, we don't want to just grow it because it was available in 1860. We want to grow it because it was available in 1860 in Atlanta. Right. So it's authentic to this local area. So we then have to figure out, well, how would they have grown these and staked them? And we learned some methods about using natural branch material and weaving it together to create a tomato table, which is something we've never done before, or to grow them as a cordon. So these are methods, historic methods of growing plants that you don't see today, and we want to keep that tradition alive and show people what used to be done. So you can see that if you go to the Smith Farm today, how we're growing them in the way that they would have been done in the 1860s. How they, we don't, we, now we, in Atlanta, we have tough soil conditions, so we grow everything in raised beds. Yeah. But if you go to the Smith Farm, you can see that precursor where you raise up the bed to get better drainage. But you can also do that so that the soil can warm up earlier in the season and you can start your crop faster. So in the Smith Farm, you'll see that the, the rows are hilled up or created in like little small plateaus. That's the precursor to the raised bed that you see today. That's the origin. Is you can go back and see that. And I think it's interesting to trace that history. Um, so yes, going back to the library, researching those materials there, and then also talking to other gardeners and people that you know, farmers aren't always you know the first to move on to the new technique and the new method, and they'll remember. So there's a lot of oral history that you can do as well and find out. Who else remembers growing these with their grandparents and how did they grow them and what did they grow? And did they pass that seed along to anybody? Did somebody save it? And can we get hold of some of that seed? So there's a, there's a great process there uh, that we love. And in that way, you end up adding to the collection, I would imagine, as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So we have an amazing urban agriculturist, Emily Roberts, who does the Smith Farm now, and she is very well connected with our network of local farmers, organic farmers. Uh, historic researchers of crops and has been able to bring back crops that would have been grown here that have been lost, that researchers at universities have been able to relocate, rediscover, grow on, and then disseminate that seed to places like us to show them to the public now. And the Smith Farm uh, is a pretty successful garden. Yes. What do you do with all that food? Isn't that a great question? We have uh, cooking demonstrations. So we have an outstanding group of interpreters that come out there, even if it's incredibly hot, and they will be doing open hearth cooking. I've had pancakes made on a griddle. We try to use crops from our farm in all of those demonstrations, and they're using their researched historical receipts or recipes and looking for those ingredients. So we will work with them to say, what do you need to create the food you want to create, and we'll grow those crops for you. So we have to do that way in advance in order to have those things ready at those times. And we've had some a lot of fun. We have a lot of public programs, too, and we've had people like Michael Twitty come out, and then he'll go out in the gardens and harvest what he wants to grow or harvest what he wants to cook with and do those demonstrations as well. So we have public programs where we do a lot of the cooking demos, and then we have school group tours with hundreds of kids on a daily basis that get to witness us harvesting and then preparing the food that we've grown there. And we also have given a lot of food to the Atlanta Food Bank uh, when we have too many or 
Sometimes we have a whole field full of cabbages coming in at the same time, so we'll, we can donate <laughs> some to them, or we can ask Super Jenny at our um, location if they need anything, and so we can give them our herbs or any bonus crops that we have. So none of it gets wasted, and if there's anything left, it goes home with the staff. We have loads more from Sarah coming up in just a moment, but first we're going to pause for just a little sponsor break. All right, coming up next, Sarah and I talk about one of the Atlanta History Center's very important recreation gardens. You also have a really, really very cool enslaved people's garden there. Um, Will you tell us about that and how it differs from some of the other recreation gardens that you have on site? Sure. So, yes, that is um, a very important garden, and we worked on restoring that about maybe seven or six years ago, where what we want to do is demonstrate that these people that were brought here in bondage and enslaved on these farms, um, they occasionally, by some of their owners, were given a plot of land. And either they, as a, a, a group of people at the farm, would have their own spot or they would work with a whole bunch of other people in a larger group. And what we're interpreting at the Smith Farm is that the people that perhaps lived in this one cabin here were given this small plot of land. And what we want to make sure that people understand is this was not an act of generosity uh, by their owners of, oh, you can have your own plot of land and aren't I nice. Right. It was very uh, sly. It was a way of saying, here's your plot of land and you you can grow your crops on your own time when I don't need you, which meant at night or, you know, a few minutes here and there. And the crops that they would grow, they they understood that if you have a harvest about to come in, you are less likely to leave because that has value. Right. And that was their place where they might be able to grow a few plants for medicine because they didn't have access to Western medicine um, and nobody was going to spend their money on that. And so they would have to grow their own and figure out what what can I use, what can I grow here, learn from other people and exchange seeds and grow those in their own small plots and apply that to themselves. We also have, uh, we've done some oral history research on these things and have knowledge of some seeds that were tucked into folds of clothes, and that's how those seeds made it over to the United States. Uh, Plants like eggplant are from Africa, something that people don't think about. So we like to tell those stories um, by also immersing you in that landscape and showing you not only that there is a difference in the plant material that may have been grown, but also in how it was grown. So instead of having neat and tidy, orderly rows of crops like the kitchen garden that the Smith family had, it is a jumble of all different plants mixed together and fit into sort of a curved uh, shape of a garden with slightly raised beds. And what it is is if they had an opportunity to utilize that plant, they'd harvest that one and plant something else in that spot. And so everything grew together in um, like a luxuriant chaos in that garden. But actually what we have found and learned from our history over time is that is a healthier way to grow crops. The orderly rows of crops, if you get one pest, they just move on through that whole crop. But if you have it mixed and scattered throughout your garden, they might only get that one plant. So there's a lot to learn. It's a nuanced and deep and complex story. And I'm glad that that is something that we talk about there. 
One thing that that we've talked about in all of this is that these are public gardens and that you are, of course, we're working in the modern era when soil has changed and climate has changed a little bit. And I'm wondering how you strike that balance between historical accuracy and also maintaining a functioning public garden that needs to thrive on its own with what we have today. Such a great question. And it's something that applies to so many public gardens. There, That's a dance that we do every day. So when you have modern-day pressures, let's say pests, for example, or disease on historic crops that never faced that pressure before, you do have to make a decision. Do we throw every effort and resource into preserving this historic plant, or do we replace it with something that is more sustainable? That's a question that every single situation requires its own team to research and decide on. One example for us is the boxwood in front of the Swan House, iconic boxwood. We have the historic ones that are that are still there right at the base of the house, and then opposite those, closer to a big cascade fountain, were boxwood that got boxwood blight. And so that had to be treated rapidly, and they had to be removed. That is the only thing to do when you have an infestation that was as bad as the one that we had. So they're gone, and we had to think, do we want to replace it at some point, knowing that those tiny little spore are going to still be in that soil and they're still going to infect the next plant, or do we put in something else? And so we decided, there's a team of us that worked on this, and we decided to replace it with a little leaf holly that will provide the same impact that the boxwood did, the same design intent from Philip Trammell Schutze, the architect and landscape architect of the Swan House and Gardens. So we did that. We bought them at a big size. We've pruned them. We've watered them by hand for years. They're thriving, and they cannot be affected by boxwood blight. So we know that long-term those are there. They don't require a constant and heavy investment of fungicides or special treatment. Uh, so that felt like a smart choice for that situation. But where we have 100-year-old boxwood in front of this one house that are not infected or might have a tiny bit, we will we want to preserve those and preserve that iconic look. So those do get more care and more treatment, but on a much smaller scale that's more affordable and sustainable. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about uh, something that people might not think of as part of your job. Okay. Animals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the History Center has an animal collection. That we is do. Not insignificant in size. So true. Will you talk about some of your heritage breeds and I'm also so just how to. you work that into your probably not ever a thing you thought when you were getting your horticulture degree? That's so true. There was a big <laughs> learning curve there. Um, fortunately, when I was at Barry College, the horticulture program was housed in the same building as animal sciences. So I, I do have the smallest amount of training in it. I didn't ever think I would use it, though. But yes, we do have heritage breed animals at the Smith Farm, and it is also something people are so surprised to find when they think they're coming to a history museum and they step out the door and they find this gigantic garden and a farm with animals. So our animals that we have were just brought in when we were able to hire someone to do their day-to-day care. So we didn't have animals for a while, and then we hired our manager of animal collections, Brett Banner. And he does all of our daily work, uh, and then we have other people filling in on his off days. But we have Gulf Coast sheep, which are a heritage breed that can survive our heat and humidity. And we have Angora goats, which also thrive here in Atlanta. They're not as commonly seen. They weren't as common as sheep. 
And then we have several different breeds of poultry. So we have Rhode Island red chickens and Plymouth rocks and a couple of turkeys that are called standard bronze, which is like one step beyond a wild turkey. So all of those, we have a historic chicken coop that we researched 19th century poultry architecture. That was really (laughs) something I didn't think I'd ever study. Um, Once I designed a coop, figured out what materials would be appropriate, square cut nails, uh, dimensional lumber, two inch by four inch, not today's two by four. So all those little bitty details go into all the work that we do. Uh, so, yes, all of those breeds are there, and uh, it is not a petting zoo. We'll make that real clear. <laughs> it is a place where we preserve these historic breeds and can educate the public about them. And I'm excited to say that we are going to attempt to carry on that heritage breed by bringing one of our sheep uh, to another farm and see if she can get impregnated, and then we'll bring her back. And if we're lucky, she will be pregnant and have a lamb for us in the spring. Or two. That'll be exciting. Very exciting. So fingers crossed. It is really hard to not want to go in and pet all the animals. I know. It's so hard. Most important. It, you can probably pet them, but Buster's very friendly. And if you just call him, <laughs> Buster, he'll probably walk up to you and let you scratch him between uh, the ears. But uh, most importantly, don't feed them. Please don't feed them. Yeah. They're on a healthy diet already, and they don't want any people food. <laughs> That's one of my personal crusades is to always tell my friends not to be giving particularly birds that they see in places, yes. please stop giving them bread. Right. <laughs> it's not good for them. It's not good for them. It means uh, well, but don't do it. It makes them very sick. Yeah. Um, you mentioned building this unique um, chicken coop that is historically accurate. <laughs> yes. One of the things that I have heard you mention before is that you guys also mill your own lumber there, oh. uh, which may or may not have been involved in the coop, but I know in the fences it shows up. Will you talk a little bit about that? We actually, we use um, a contractor to do it, but we save our trees whenever we can. So if there is a, a tree that needs to come down because it's structurally hazardous, uh, we will look at that and decide, is there a way that we could use this lumber on site uh, so we'll ha- we can have it milled locally and brought back here, and we will store it. And our- we stored our last um, lot of wood. It took about 18 months for it to dry. And once it got to that uh, critical moisture point, we decided what we we're going to do with it. And I had eyeballed one tree in particular and thought there's- it was a white oak. It had lots of good lumber, and it had to come down anyway. So I thought, well, let's see what we can do. And We are in the process now of creating an absolutely enormous table. I call it the tree table. And it's going to go up in this new landscape, the entrance gardens, under some towering pines and oaks. And it's about, it's going to be about 60 feet long. Wow. It'll be huge. And it's all made from this tree just on our property. All of it uh, is going to be utilized for this. And the tabletop is more than halfway through. So we're still working out all of its final um, structural components and exactly how it's going to sit in the landscape. But it will be very cool. And I want it to really represent uh, bringing the community together in Atlanta. This is your welcome to come here and eat your lunch and enjoy these gardens and sit in the shade of this little remnant of forest in Buckhead uh, and join us and have conversations and talk to your neighbor and have a coffee and sit in this landscape and think about all these different things that we've brought up today or, um, you know, just enjoy being outside and appreciating that we have that opportunity. That's so cool. 
Oh, I can't wait to see it. It's going to be real cool. Um, Will you also talk a little bit about all of your um, building collection? Oh, there are so many buildings. So you mean the historic homes? Yeah. And that, so yes, we have. So the Smith Farm we've talked about, and there's a number of buildings there between our old barn, the blacksmith shop, a, a corn crib, a dairy, uh, which is a small room, a kitchen, smokehouse, the coop, and the enslaved people's cabin. And then we have the Swan House from 1928, Philip Trimble Schutze's uh, classical masterpiece. Then there's also a cabin out in Swan Woods. Uh, Swan Woods is about a 10-acre section of our property that is Piedmont Forest. And we have this very cool cabin that's out there, and it's actually being utilized in a new school group tour that we're putting on, where because this cabin has logs from multiple different eras, it's been uh, put together. It has its own unique and long history, but there's no one date that we can put on that cabin. So we can use it to interpret different periods. And right now we're looking at what happened when the creek Indians were pushed out on the Trail of Tears, and then who would have moved in? So this could have been their home, and then they would have been pushed out, and a settler during the land lottery could have moved in and and acquired that home. So we were able to tell those stories with these historic homes and many, many more stories. And I think that's one of the things the History Center is so good at is— telling stories that aren't often told. And I think that we can do that both within the museum, within our historic houses, and in our gardens. Uh, There was one thing when I saw you uh, speak before, you mentioned something that just struck my fancy, uh, which is another callback to how you can't always recreate a garden the way it was. Yes. Oleander. Yeah, the Oleander story, yes. So that's a great point. It's just one of many little things that uh, that we've worked out over the years. The Swan House is beautiful cascade fountain in the front. Mrs. Inman used to put terracotta pots on each of the little pedestals alongside that fountain. And we recreated that with terracotta pots. And what she had in there that we know from photographs and scrutinizing old photos was oleander, pink oleander. Pink and white were her favorite colors. So we eventually recreated that, and we found out uh, that wasn't exactly what brides always want to have in their weddings. And we used that <laughs> space at, at, in front of the Cascade Fountain as a, as a rental space where we have lots of weddings every year. So it meant our staff would have to pull all those pots down every time they wanted to do their own arrangements of flowers there. So yes, well, it, well to be strictly true to historic accuracy, those pots with those oleanders would be there. But on the downside, oleander is toxic if eaten, so we don't want anyone to pick it and eat it. So we thought maybe that's not the best thing to have out there. Uh, But also the idea of having to move those plants all the time in order to accommodate the weddings. So another example is we have a big gravel path, um, very carefully designed in front of the Swan House. That's not original. That was me. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, But in order to accommodate opening to the public— you have to make some changes. Yeah. You have to make it where people can get in and out and not have to walk through what might be wet and muddy ground after a heavy rain. So how do you do that? Well, you just you look at the original design intent. You try to be true to that, and you try not to put in something that couldn't be removed. So I put in a gravel path. So if one day we decided— Let's go back to strictly exactly what it was. That wouldn't be hard to remove. Right. If we put in a solid concrete or stone path, that would be a lot more work, and a lot more expense. So this way, we've put in a way where we can have wonderful 
rentals and weddings. People can walk on it and utilize the space, and everyday visitors come in and out without causing damage to the landscape because they're on a regular path. Whereas before, when it was just lawn, when you put that much foot traffic on yeah. it, it's going to die off. Well, it's the even though uh, you apologize for it, it's the difference between keeping a historic space usable and something that people can interact with and appreciate versus, no, I swear it's beautiful inside. Right. You may not be able to get Stay there with any sort the of ease. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we want people to come and enjoy these beautiful historic homes. We want everybody to be able to get there and walk around and take pictures and enjoy it and not put it behind a rope yeah. to let you walk through. And in many cases, we have the opportunity to play hands-on. So if you go up to that little children's room, uh, Sam and Mimi's playroom, the Inman children, you can go play and sit on the rocking horse and sit on their beds and play with the toys. And that's just something you don't get to do at a lot of museums. And we're working on a new children's trail in the gardens as well, where any spot that you go to, you'll see that there's a very obvious hands-on play area so as a caregiver or an adult, you can maybe read some of the panels or look around at the gardens or that particular location, but your children might be playing in the playhouse or, uh, you know, investigating some little children's feature that we've added to the gardens. There is more coming up, including uh, how the Atlanta History Center solved a problem of trying to recreate a meadow in a space where even weeds would not grow. But first, we're going to hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going. All right, now uh, we are about to get some great science in this discussion, including how the History Center is helping with breeding programs for chestnuts. There was an, another element of the landscape there that I love, which is that you have like a reclamation meadow going on. Yes. Will you talk about that a little bit? I love that you remember all these stories. Um, <laughs> yes. I was taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> we have several reclamation meadows. So at the end of every construction project, we have to take what is left and figure out the mechanics of how to make that soil healthy again. Um, as well as breathe life back into it. When you drive heavy machinery over soil, it is inevitable that it becomes compacted. So we always do preventative strategies first, and then there's the area where they have to drive the vehicles, and so we have to come in and fix it. Well, when we built the wood cabin out in, out in Swan Woods, uh, there was quite a bit of compacted soil, and I thought, what am I going to do here? But it was the first time also that I had any full sun out in that woodland, and the missing component to that woodland was a wildflower meadow. When in any forest, and in that that forest is a secondary succession forest, meaning it's been cut once and it's regrown. Uh, so everybody left to go fight in the Civil War. The cotton fields were abandoned and upsprang these woods, and they have since been preserved since that time. So now I have this one opening where we built the cabin, and there was some sun in that spot, and I thought, now I can finally create the understory, the perennial meadow that would have lived here. So just like if you had a natural disaster, if you had a tornado rip through, it would clear out an opening. We're trying to recreate an authentic regrowth. What would that look like? So we use strictly Piedmont native plants in Swan Woods, which is this band across where Atlanta sits, across Georgia, between mountains and coastal plain. So we're only using those species. We use a flora. We use Allen Weekly's flora of this southeastern region to identify which plants are really native here. So checking all of our accuracy and then what kind of conditions do they want to grow in. 
these are not plants that you can just go to the store and buy in a one-gallon pot. <laughs> you have to grow these plants from seed. So then we have to source that. Well, you can't just throw seed on a compacted clay right. piece of earth. Nothing will grow there. We knew when we didn't even have weeds in that spot that we had some serious soil <laughs> issues. <laughs> so the first step was trying to rent a, a tiller. It has very small access. You can't get a tractor out there or anything. So we rented a tiller, and it just went ding, 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 ding across the ground because it was so hard. So we tried another larger tiller, and we worked in one inch of compost. We didn't want to make rich garden soil. We wanted to recreate a natural process. So basically speeding up a couple thousand years of evolution within a couple of years. So we did that there, um, worked in a little bit of soil, and in order to it's put our first round of seeds out, and we use seeds like partridge pea, which is a legume, and it creates its own nitrogen. Mm. So it can feed itself. And then when you um, let that crop die down and you seed something else, it adds that little bit of layer of organic matter to the soil, and it's a little bit richer and a little bit nicer soil, so then a higher species can be grown. And you, you keep doing this for a couple of passes, three or four passes in with our seed mixes, we started to see real vitality and that something was working. We also wanted to take the opportunity to grow another species in our living collections that we had not been able to do much, which was, was American chestnuts. We know that the American chestnut was here. You can see them on plats. They were often used as the corner post of a property line mm -hmm. because they were big. And when the chestnut bite blew through and killed off a lot of the chestnuts, uh, they would spring up from root suckers, but they were pretty much as a functioning species uh, wiped out. So what we want to do is also tell that story of species that were once here that we no longer see today. So on the lower half of that meadow, we wanted to plant American chestnuts, but not just any chestnut. We wanted the ones that have the American Chestnut Foundation has been breeding for decades. So I worked with Dr. Martin Cipollini at Berry College, who was my old botany professor, to say, I know you're studying these. I remember researching them in school. Can we grow some of your hybrids? And so that worked out to a great partnership with them. And we have 40 American chestnuts in our orchard now. But in order to plant those, we had to use a big gas-powered auger to break through that ground because <laughs> it was hard. So that requires drilling through. And we finally found topsoil about 28 inches down through that clay hard pan. So we broke it up with an auger because that was the only way to dig. You couldn't get a shovel in. Uh, broke that all up in a big area, amended it a little bit, and planted our new hybrid chestnuts, which are 15 sixteenths. American chestnut and one sixteenth Chinese chestnut, and that gives them that little bit of blight resistance, that and then allows you to still have what looks like an American chestnut stall, tall and straight, and grows the kind of chestnuts that you want to roast uh, with just a little bit of that disease resistance. So we have the lower meadow, that's the chestnut orchard, and also surrounded by wildflowers. It's also where we started our apiary, and so we have our own honeybees down there. And then on the upper meadow, um, that's just purely grasses and wildflowers, so that we can show people what would have regenerated in a Piedmont forest had there been a forest clearing. Um, and that, those hybrid chestnuts, is there like reciprocal benefit? Does your former professor come and get to look at them and see how they're doing and examine what's going on when they have kind of sure. all of the benefits of ideal growth? Yes. So what we will do, yes. So he's been back here again, and we can send an annual report to say what's happening, what's doing well. Um, but also, ideally, this is an educational orchard. This is an opportunity to show people we have a few purely American, a few purely Chinese, and then here's what the hybrids look like. So we have it as an educational orchard, but also to contribute towards this science that we will grow these trees on. We will let them become teenagers or so when they're about 
20 feet tall. That's when you would come through and inoculate the chestnuts. And you would put cryophonectriod parasitica straight into the trunk of that tree and jacks it like a shot and see if it heals. So that is the chestnut blight. It's either going to grow a big, horrible, weeping wound, and you'll know this tree has no disease resistance, just cut it down, or it's going to heal over, and it'll be one of those that you think this is one that we need to breed from to carry on this research for the next generation. So ideally, that's what would happen. We'll grow these trees on for another decade and then do the injections and then cull all the trees that aren't any good and then utilize those last couple towards the breeding program and plant the next generation of chestnuts. I love it. Um, You're kind of keeping the history of that plant alive in the modern era in like the most fabulous ways. So if somebody at home wants to add a little bit of history to their own Mm -hmm. garden, where do you recommend they start? Mm, Interesting. Well, all history goes back to agricultural history. So I think if you want to be a part of this larger story, you should grow something that you're going to eat. Um, Everything that we do in this world requires plants at the very root of it. We need oxygen to breathe, so we need plants to produce that oxygen. We need food to eat, so we have to grow it. So it all comes back to that very basic necessity. Um, So growing something, and I would say teaching a child or someone who is real, um, you know, city dweller that has never spent much time in nature or has never grown anything on their own, sharing that story or that amazing sense of pride of having grown something from seed that actually grew and became like a little tree seedling and then go plant it somewhere and water it in and keep an eye on it and watch it grow because there's really, it's hard to even explain how much that uh, gives back to you. And as like I have two children that I we collect seeds and we'll plant them around and watch them grow, and they're astonished that it worked. <laughs> so <laughs> it it does work. Uh, so I love that. And then I think also uh, there's a lot of plants with an interesting ornamental history too, like um, Lilium regale is this beautiful trumpet lily, fragrant white, blooms in the summer when things are maybe a little bit flatter in your garden. But know that that lily came from a plant explorer that went all the way over to Asia and was looking and found a valley full of these lilies growing. And an avalanche hit him and crushed his leg. And for the rest of his life, Ernest Henry Wilson, or Chinese Wilson, walked with what he called his lily limp. (laughs) And I have 60 of these bulbs flowering in Olguita's garden, which is the new garden that we built last year and opened in the fall in honor of Olguita Goizueta. And there's 60 of these Lilium regale bulbs, and they're very fragrant and beautiful, and they're white, so they show up really well at night as well. And I think of that history. Instead of just going, oh, here's this plant I bought from a bulb company and right. stuck it in the ground. Like, I love to know some of that background and some of those stories behind the plants and how do they end up here. I love it. Even azaleas, our most everyday humdrum. Everyone's seen azaleas. They're all over Atlanta. Yeah. But why are they here? They're not from here. They're from Asia. Someone decided, let's let's try these as a florist crop. They grew them in <laughs> pots. And, like, you know, now we see them at the grocery store. But someone decided to plant it outside. And someone else in Atlanta, Frank A. Smith, decided this will do really well here. And we should be promoting these. And he's a nurseryman. And started promoting to all of his customers to plant these azaleas and dogwoods. And what do you see now? 
all over Atlanta, it's azaleas and dogwoods. You yeah. see that legacy from this nurseryman who was promoting this plant that these explorers brought back. So there's this long chain of events to make Atlanta have this spring landscape that it does. And that's one of our other gardens is the Frank A. Smith Rhododendron Garden. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Didn't magnolias also start out as coastal plants? And yep. now people think of them as so sort of yes, Atlanta, the like the classic, but they weren't here originally. The southern magnolia <laughs> with the leathery leaves and the huge fragrant flowers, those are coastal plant species. And again, this is these are the complex stories that we can tell as we get warmer up here. Those plants are finding their homes moving, they can move further north. So now they'll reseed and regenerate up here in the Piedmont when they used to live down by the coast. And that is that story of global warming, climate change. And as that climate changes, we're seeing these species move north. And so what we consider a native plant is that it shifts, is that at a certain line in the sand, a certain era or a certain time, or do we have to evolve as gardens with the plants as they move themselves around the country and around the world? So, yes, our southern magnolia is moving its way north, and it is seeding around everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Will you tell us a little bit about Olguita's garden and perhaps even her camellia? Oh, yes. So, Olguita Goizueta has, uh, was a trustee at the Atlanta History Center and an amazing leader and philanthropic person. And when she passed away in 2015, her family said we would love to honor her legacy with a new garden space at the History Center at the Goizueta Gardens, which makes a lot of sense. And so we learned a little bit about what she loved about gardens and that she loved English gardens and French gardens and formal gardens. And that was very exciting. That is something we didn't have. We have all these different styles of gardens at the History Center, but not an English garden. And given my background, having lived there for many years, I couldn't wait to create an English garden at the History Center. So the gardens itself, they also greatly expand our living collections by letting us grow all these ornamental perennials in full sun. And it's right behind uh, the museum. When you go out the back doors, you are ensconced within Olguita's garden right, left, and center. To the right-hand side is the more formal side of it, where there is a walled garden space with a double border, a very English uh, look, and billowing perennials coming over a gravel path leading to a focal point of a fountain with Neil Reed columns uh, flanking uh, four sides of the fountain, and that water feature is full of water lilies and papyrus. Uh, So this whole space was created with the idea of creating a garden that was beautiful all year, always had something in bloom, and had a special emphasis on fragrance. So we have all kinds of plants like the lilies that I mentioned earlier that are fragrant, or they might be hyacinths or roses or other traditional English garden plants that are tucked within those double borders. Also, very special was the History Center's first plant introduction. So when we went to plant around that fountain, those very tall columns. We needed some really big plants to immediately seat that garden in and have it look full and lush and formal and and to scale. So we did a lot of research, and we ended up going to Alabama, where Bobby Green's nursery is, and we found, through a lot of discussion, the largest camellias for sale in the United States, which is a huge find. Our director of horticulture, Tiffany Jones, managed that with all of her connections in the nursery world. And 
we went down there in November when they were in full bloom. And just, it just blew my mind to walk in this field where these camellias are growing in 100-gallon pots. Wow. So, I mean, just imagine hugging the biggest tree possible. They're about that big around <laughs> the size of those pots. Very heavy. But we managed to select a variety of his hybrid seedlings, and he was willing to share those with us. And so we we purchased those. And one of them was, unlike any camellia I've ever seen before, it was absolutely covered in flowers, and they're white, and they have streaks of this raspberry pink through the petals and a central boss of golden stamens. But just its floriferous nature and its beautiful small leaves and its form was very elegant. So we asked him, would it be possible for us to perhaps name this plant and honor this family who's done so much for Atlanta and especially Olgita Goizueta? And he said he loved that idea. He loves that people are making public gardens happen, and he wanted to honor that too. So he gave us the naming rights, and we named it Camellia Okita. And that is a one-of-a-kind camellia, and it is growing right alongside the little limestone terrace of that garden where everybody can see it right up close and see those gorgeous flowers. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. Oh, Sarah, you're such a delight. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I can talk about plants all the time. I love it. (laughs) Uh, But thank you so much for spending so much of your morning with me. I feel so lucky and spoiled. Oh, it was Um, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Where can people find you or the History Center? On our website, atlantahistorycenter.com. You'll also find us on our blog, and we have Facebook and Twitter. So we're all over the place. Perfect. Thank you so much. You bet. Many, many thanks to Sarah and to the Atlanta History Center. Uh, You can check out everything that they've got going on at atlantahistorycenter.com. They do a lot of great programs. Uh, We are in the autumn season, and they are doing some fun Halloween activities. And if you're in Atlanta, I highly recommend visiting. It is an absolutely beautiful space. You can see all of the amazing things that Sarah described, which you might have been surprised to learn exist there. So I hope you all go and check it out. Uh, I also have a little bit of listener mail. I'll keep it short since this was kind of a a longish episode. I believe this is from our listener, Sharon. It is a postcard, and I know I always tell you, but it really is true. Uh, Things often get a little bit uh, blurred or distorted because they put stamps on the postcards at the post office. So she writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I love the show. On a recent trip to Tillamook and the Oregon coast, I thought about how there are very few lighthouse episodes. Oregon has some great and spooky ones. She recommends some specific ones. uh, And she says, just a thought. Thanks for making my long commute better. I love learning from you and sharing with my students. Uh, And she just writes, P.S. I thought the cow was just cute, which is, it is on a cow postcard. Uh, One, I just wanted to take this opportunity since she is an educator to thank her for being an educator and all of the educators out there who listen to the show. Uh, you are doing such important work, and we're so grateful that you're out there. Uh, and also just to to uh, say, I will always talk about a lighthouse. Uh, those are fun, so I'll, I'll hunt for some of those stories. I can't ever promise. <laughs> uh, we have a long list, and it kind of just depends when things shuffle into rotation, but uh, no taken. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History and at our website, mistinhistory.com. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast and you haven't yet, now is a perfect time. And you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.